0: Welcome back to the sixth episode of Staying Alive, a podcast series on contemporary poetry and crisis. I'm Adriana Jacobs, and in this episode, we'll hear from the Israeli poet, Tahel Frosch. In 2011, a series of protests spread across Israel, sparked by rising housing costs, the increased cost of living, and a widening gap between rich and poor. The makeshift tents that covered Tel Aviv's Rothschild Boulevard became one of the iconic images of this protest, lending it the sobriquet, the Tent Protests. Israeli poets like Tahel Frush were notably active during this period, organizing public readings and distributing their poetry online and for free. A few years later, in 2014, Tahel published her debut collection, Avarice, to wide acclaim. In Hebrew, the word for avarice is *betza*, which derives from the root meaning to break off, cut, and tear apart. Its relation to plunder, greed, and violently ill-gotten gains recurs in a number of biblical texts, but in later Hebrew, it also refers to the breaking of bread before a blessing and to the idea of compromise, like in the English idiom, splitting the difference. In this episode, which we recorded in Oxford to Helen, and I revisit the making of avarice and the questions that it raises about the value of poetry and the complicated role that money plays in our lives. I want to start talking about your collection, Avarice, which came out in 2014. It appeared several years after the global financial crisis of 2007, 2008, and a few years after the 2011 social justice protests in Israel. How much of this was in the background while you were putting together your collection? Mm. Thank you, Adriana,
1: for having me um oh you you're making me go back (laughs) um i think that few poems were written after 2011 and most of the poems were written before the uh, the summer of protest of 2011 were they connected to the crisis of 2008 they might because we were all affected although in Israel the crisis didn't really hit it wasn't felt like financially or economically that the myth is that we 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 weren't really affected of, of that crisis what happened in Israel since the beginning of the twenty-first century, is, is really that uh, uh, the prices of, of, of housing, of houses, went really, really high, like sort up. So uh, the protest of 2011 really began in relation to this process of housing, of the housing problem in Israel, which grew bigger and bigger, But I think that I wrote poems connected to economy or money, I think, a lot earlier. My thesis in psychology was about avarice, actually. It was about greed. I tried to research um, some kind of greed mechanism in psychology, like in the psychology of, of, of tycoons, I interviewed a few of, uh, Israeli tycoons, which I can't say their names, unfortunately, because I'm obliged to uh, uh, anonymity. And then I try to see what's common with them, like how they use language, actually. So I think I try to find language to these, uh, to these issues um, uh, in, in so many directions, <laughs> like
0: in poetry and in, uh, in research. You've been interested in the psychology of greed and the language of mm-hmm. avarice. Can you tell us where that comes from? I think it comes from
1: uh, really my uh, personal history because I grew uh, not in a wealthy family, but they were fine. They were really like, uh, you know, they put me through college, they put me through university. I didn't had uh, have to work. Um, I was like in a middle class um, family. And then one day in the beginning of the 2000s, my father lost all his investments because of bad investments. And this is the first time I had to really think about money. And I think that because it was so arbitrary, the situation was so arbitrary, the thing that you have money and then you don't have money and then you have to start to think about money and the, your relations to money and what, is, what it is that you have to do in order to have money. Um, it happened in my early 20s and it's something that really shocked me. I think it's the biggest crisis that I've ever been in my life. And I think that uh, this is an unspoken question because I think many people have uh, very difficult relations with money and uh, economical conditions. But in psychology, it's unknown. Like, it's unknown condition. It has no name. We don't use it, like, in, uh, in, uh, in treatment, like in psychology, in like uh, in life crisis uh, situations. And I think it's one of the biggest crisis that uh, people can can have in life actually Um, um, if money is absent, if you lose money, if you deteriorate in your status, so it's a very uh, complicated thing to go through and I think that it made me start to think about it and I think I started to think about it differently than other people because I was in, in like, I, I experienced the two, the two situations. Like, I, spe- I experienced the situation when you have enough money, and then I experienced the situation where you don't have enough money. So it amazed me. Like, it was a surprise. Yeah. A really, it was a really surprise. It's a real surprise for me.
0: You actually just gave a reading here at Oxford, and one of the questions that came up there, and I suspect it comes up quite often when you're reading your work, is this connection between the personal and and the political. Well, I think this is
1: really uh, a common question uh, which is asked, um, and it's uh, I think we can ask it uh, about the, the, the text, like, like, what, what is it to write a text in from the personal perspective, like you write it as a personal experience, you write your experience, and uh, then how it relates to the public experience and the, and the, the zeitgeist, like what is going on in the world in the moment politically. And I don't think that uh, avarice is disconnected to this to this uh, 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 political mm-hmm. issue. It is in the core of the political conditions in Israel since the neoliberal turn in Israel. So I felt it strongly. So I really uh, write my personal experience in this political uh bigger sphere um, so it's it's really it really is connected to the political issues over time but i didn't write it like in uh now, I, now that i think about it as I have a poem that is, is it? no, but I didn't write it as a declaration. Like I didn't write it as to address the the political uh, problem of economy, okay, or the neoliberal turn in uh, in Israel. Um, like I don't know, like feminist writing you know you don't uh, address uh, love as a as kind of a, a feminist uh, 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 crisis or or issue but you write your experience in love so i think this is uh, how i write about my connection to money or work or uh, um Yes, other other uh, um, situations that that connects to the neoliberal state, um, and also the male, like the male figure, like my father, who is, I think, is uh, is in the core of the book. And also, it was unconscious for me to see it. Just after the book was completed, I was surprised to know that he was in the core of the book because he was the presenter of the economy for me in my family life, like in our house. He was the representative of the one who brings money and who works and who deals with it. He's the one who made lousy decisions about money. So he was a male figure and it was the, the male figure that uh, um, eventually became the core of this book and it it really surprised me because I always thought that I'm going to write about my mother and it turned out to be my father. Um, So I think that, uh, I I really think that political uh, poetry, which is written uh, 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 to address a political situation which is not a
0: personal situation, is really boring for me. So in your poem, On Work, you write, only rich people can be artists, writers, teachers, and not starve to death. This is a really powerful line. And I think it's one that I think, um, on the one hand, sort of resonates globally in this sort of romantic idea of the starving artist. But I think it also means something really specific for a poet in Israel. Uh, The conditions of culture in Israel in general, very,
1: very difficult. Like um, um, we don't have uh, almost any public money that invested in culture. We have this oh point oh one percent, okay, of the cake of the financial of the of the money that uh, government uh, distributes uh, to the culture. It's nothing. It's like it's like, I don't know, in, in, I think we are in, in a very, 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 very bad uh, situation because all of the money is going to war. If you look at the distribution of money in Israel, considering culture, and, you th- and if you think about the distribution of money as a symbol of how important things, so culture is not important in Israel. It's really not important. And of course um, writing in general is getting less and less and poetry in writing, like in the writing professions, is like it's so marginal. There is no such thing as being a poet and earn money. You almost have to pay money like most of the people that want to publish their books in Israel they can't publish the books without paying money. Like I had chamsa, chamsa, I had a very uh, <laughs> I had a I had a very good luck uh, that Musad Bialik contacted me in order to to publish better
0: like, That's your publisher.
1: Yes, for better. And um uh, because uh, uh, the editor saw my poems in in some kind of reviews, and she really liked them. And she 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 asked me if I have more, and and then she wanted to to publish a book. But it's very rare. Yeah. And so what? Also, what happens? Like, and after that, it was because the book was a success, and and there was like people in the in the literary scene knew my name and, and know me, so it was easy for me to, bup- to publish now my second book um, and not need to invest money on it. But most of the people I know have to really pay for their uh, for the publishing. So it's unbelievable for me. <laughs> I, think, I think it's, it's unbelievable conditions uh, to, to write or do art. But there is uh, a lot of good poetry in Israel. Right. There is a vibrant poetry scene in Israel. And this is because uh, poetry is a form that is suited for financial crisis and for people who don't have time to invest time in writing.
0: Ooh, can you say more about that?
1: like when you um, um, have to work a lot in order to to live to support yourself and your family. So you don't have time to write like long novels or or uh, fiction. So you shrink so you 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 shrink your texts. This is a, a really a, actually it's a problem because a lot of bad poetry is being written exactly for this <laughs> from, from this situation because it's not really poetry but it's some kind of compromise between what you ha- you, you you have been able to re- write if you had the time and the resources and what you really have so the forms of poetry really helps people to express themselves in this
0: um, kind of crisis. But I actually wanted to ask you about that, about how sort of the material conditions of the life of a poet um, also sometimes shape the form of the poem. Because actually one of the really interesting and challenging things about translating Avarice is that you actually have poems with very long lines. They go almost from one side of the page to the other. Then when you translate them into English, it expands by 30%. Mm-hmm. And so there's this challenge as the translator um, to try to get it to fit the page. But at the same time, there's this feeling of excess, mm-hmm. of the language just spilling out. And that seems to be a bit the opposite of what you're describing, this fragmentary writing. And so then I see this excessive writing as being a kind of protest against mm-hmm the conditions that only allow for a kind of fragmented writing? I never thought about it, really. It's really, uh,
1: yes, I have to think about it. Um, I think it's very difficult to look at your own writing and to understand really what what you've been, de- been doing with it. Right. Like what came out, what is your unconscious really make out of it. Because, uh, because you're right like, and, and, and I think that maybe um, yes, it has access ex- in it mm-hmm. and maybe it uh, has co- even more complicated, rela- now I think about it, even more complicated relationships with uh, capitalism maybe it manifests capitalism in its in its mm-hmm. forms like I'm accumulating <laughs> I'm accumulating words I accumulate text because it's uh, it's uh, it's not a short uh, book like uh, it has its uh, accumulation like it's it has its weight um so yes this is I think it's very interesting to think about the, the forms that comes out of this unconscious capitalism
0: when we write. Since we've been talking about the forms of poetry, thought maybe we would take this moment to hear one of your poems. Um, and this is a poem that in English I've translated as Dark Country, and in Hebrew Eretz Afela. Um, do you mind reading it for us in Hebrew and then I'll read it? In English.
1: This is the first poem uh, that appears in uh, Averit. This is the opening of the book. And um, it starts with an epigraph by Robert Bly. I'll read it in Hebrew. Okay. Ha Yelet Sholosh, Shololamat שלושים אלף שנה. לפעמים זו ילדה. לא ראו עליי דבר. אישה בלי צלקות, אור לבנבן, עיניים כהות, גבר תלוי אל השכם. היו נעים, בית, ימים שלמים, את הסדינים ולהרבה בקריות נהגתי במרפסת כאילו הייתה חדר עבודה ובסלון כאילו היה ארון בקדים בלבלתי בין ארוחות אף אחד לא ראה לעתים הרשתי הצצות דריכור לטבור לשונות בפי ממשישות חרכים, נקווים את ליבי. לא הרשתי, לחורף להרטיב את צערי, לדמעות, פומבי, לענן שישב לידי לגלות את פניו. לא, זה שלי. זה היה שלי. אהבתי את ארץ האפלה הזאת. חבריינית, לא נושמת. עצמי כמו ציפור קטנה, מצונפת. נמצא שער ועוד שער לבוא אליה. <laughs> okay, now I'm going
0: to read it in my English translation, starting with the Robert Bly epigraph, which comes from his poem One Source of Bad Information, Dark Country. There's a boy in you, about three years old, who hasn't learned a thing for 30,000 years. Sometimes it's a girl. They didn't see anything in me. A woman without scars, whitish skin, dark eyes, a man hanging on her shoulder. I had nice clothes, a cleaning lady, days full of reflection on the situation, I would press the sheets and rearrange the pillows, stand on the balcony, as if it were a home office, and in the living room, as if it were a wardrobe. I confused my meals, no one saw a thing. Sometimes I let myself sneak a look through the belly button, a tongue in the ring, hands stroking the slits, the holes, my heart. I wouldn't allow the winter to dampen my hair, tears in public, or let the cloud sitting next to me reveal itself. No, it's mine. It used to be. I loved this pale, dark country. Breathlessly, I lay trampled at its gates like a little bird, crouching. I found a gate and another gate that could reach it again and again. That was my dark country. Grand speeches, grand people, the great big world, everything shrank inside of it. Some other woman had to come and triumph. So the way the poem is written in the past tense gives it the feeling of being, for me, kind of a bit post-apocalyptic, in the sense that the speaker is looking back on a time that no longer exists.
1: Yes, and I think it refers really to, it's like uh, we're doing this uh, whole uh, circle because it refers to the, the the our our uh, opening of of the conversation now like the like the things that, the the first question that you asked me because this is really a poem that describes the uh, pre crisis that I experienced and it's like some kind of Hagdama uh, preface to the book the first part of the book is like this uh, whole that, that, that we go through it uh, in order to come to the uh, more uh, to the world, the world, what is it with the world and when you are when you're in the world, when you're not in this dark country, um, you have to face conditions like material conditions, money, work, there's no work in this poem because this is how it used to be so um, and it's like i am a gallant a bira
0: a chevalier but <laughs> yes. a, a, a female chevalier. <laughs> exactly
1: yeah. which had to go and step out of this dark country and the book is this her journey of this and she had to win This gallant has to come to win the situation, because the one who was in this dark country couldn't. So it's really
0: about the past. The epigraph to your poem really intrigues me, because Robert Bly's poem is addressing how human survival skills have changed over time, and how certain skills that may have worked in the past don't work anymore. Um, they could even kill us if we tried to employ them now. Um, it's a poem about kind of the different tools we need to stay alive. And I wanted to sort of turn that question to poetry itself, and also because the epigraph features in the opening poem of the collection. It urges the question of what are the survival skills of contemporary poetry under the particular material conditions that you've described. And not just material conditions, also within this, you use the word zeitgeist. How has poetry had to adapt to stay alive, as it were?
1: Well, from my perspective, as a, a poet who sits in Israel and uh, uh, in Facebook and in um, uh, social networks, I think that uh, poetry is extremely alive. It's, it's flourishing. Bad poetry is written all the time. There's a lot of people who wants to write poetry. Because as I said before, it's a very um, accessible form for people who has to survive, who have to who have to, uh, who doesn't have time, a lot of time in their hands. It's a valuable form for them to, to express their feelings and write and, uh, and use art in some way. So there's, you know, many people who write. So I'm not worried about poetry as, as a, a form that is going to be used now and in the future. You know, I think it's so uh, vital... A form of art and language, it would survive no matter what will happen in the material sense. So I'm pretty optimistic about the survival
0: of poetry. Well, I think that's the perfect note on which to end our conversation, which I hope will continue in other places and in other forms. Thank you so much to Hell for being a part of this. Thank you, Adriana. It was a pleasure. This episode features the poem Dark Country from Tehel Frosch's collection Avarice, published in 2014 by Masad Bialik. Next time, we'll be talking to poet Vani Kapildeo in London. Staying Alive is an original podcast series created and presented by me, Adriana Jacobs, with editing by Daniel Bieber and Danny Cox, and music by the Zombie Dandies. Support for this podcast comes from the John Fell Fund. For more information about this episode, including materials that didn't make it into the final cut, visit the podcast website, stayingalive.show.